welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to What on Earth. I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Minerals, Energy and Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group. Thank you for joining us to discuss the broader strategic issues facing business owners and operators, especially as Australia transitions to the post-carbon, net-zero carbon emissions future. In this podcast, we look at the world issues from an industry and a business perspective, and we try to provide you with strategic and business insights. We believe that the first step is to understand what on earth is going on and to get our strategic thinking in place. This podcast unpacks the big issues and tries to find clarity in the chaos of change. Joining me each episode to discuss and dissect the big issues are my two learned colleagues, my two friends, my amigos, Tenet Reid, who is the head of energy and environment for the Australian Industry Group and a well-respected international voice on these issues. Hello, Tenet. G'day, James. Welcome to 2023. Um, what a wonderful year it's going to be. Yeah. So much happening. <laughs> Better than the last few, possibly. And Paul Hudson, the Principal Advisor of Paul Hudson Advisory, a CEO uh, of the Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC bid, a chair, the Chairman of Queensland Manufacturing Institute, and so much more. He's uh, well known as a business and industry commentator, and it's always good to get his insights. Hello, Paul. Hi, James, and uh, Happy New Year to all your listeners. Um, and uh, yeah, good to be back for the, the first one of 2023. Uh, it's um, it's February already, but I think that's, we can stop saying that now, just about. But for us, it is our first episode. <laughs> there is a lot happening, and over the Christmas period, it was busy as always in the net zero transition world. It's pretty clear, I think, that the change, the pace of change, is increasing quickly, which means we have a lot to discuss. Uh, it's been said that we, as a country and as businesses, are in a race to net zero by twenty fifty. So I thought today we might just revisit the salad bowl approach we used last year. That is, let's look at a whole bunch of different issues, look at a bunch of issues that will give us a broad-based starting point, and let's do a kind of fast and furious examination of each, a salad bowl of crunchy transition issues. And the obvious starting point is to actually get a starting point. We said in our last episode that some big things happened in the transition in 2022. Australia elected a new government uh, with strong support for climate action and it quickly established net zero goals for the economy and for business. The Russian invasion of of Ukraine created a global energy supply challenge and Australia's gas and oil prices soared as export demand reached records high. The US passed two massive pieces of legislation, the CHIPS Act, which will see the US enter the silicon chip industry in a big way, and a broad-based Inflation Reduction Act, which will have significant impacts on the world as, uh, as the US moves away from globalization and towards more protectionism. But there's also some good, good opportunities in the transition environment and good for us. And lastly, of course, China spent most of the year in lockdown, which suppressed its output, its impact on the world economy, and its decarbonization process. Uh, Tenet went to Sharm El Sheikh for a reasonably successful UN climate change, and Paul and others continued Australia's effort to build a sustainable and profitable green energy sector. 
On top of all that, according to research by Bloomberg, the annual investment in renewable energy, electrified transport, and heat, uh, energy storage, and other technologies reached $1.1 trillion, which means it is the first year where investment in the energy transition equaled global investment in fossil fuels, also at $1.1 trillion. The new energy sector is very quickly becoming a major part of global business economy. It was quite a year last year. So, Tanner, my question is, where are we now? What's the starting point of this year? Has the energy crisis for Australian businesses abated, or is it worse? Uh, are the political arguments settling down? Are we starting to see good policy? And has there been any announcements or developments since we last talked? So the energy crisis part of things is a very, very much a moving story right now. At the end of last year, the federal government did announce a major intervention to address high energy prices. Uh, they said that they would work with the states to cap coal prices for electricity generation and that they would themselves legislate to cap gas prices in the short term and to put a mandatory gas code of conduct in place that would restrain gas prices beyond uh, 2023. And since that time, we've seen a couple of things. One, in electricity, we have seen wholesale electricity price futures plunge from where they had been. Uh, They are way down. Uh, The second thing that we've seen, though, is the contract market for gas in the eastern half of the country has been more or less frozen since mid-December. Gas producers have been saying, whether to large customers or to retailers, oh, there's too much uncertainty about how these price caps and mandatory code are going to work. We're still studying it. We're not in a position to offer you any further gas at this time beyond what's already contracted. Now, that as we speak, that position may be starting to break up. There is clarification that the ACCC has provided on how the emergency price caps will work for 2023. And uh, one uh, gas producer has started to to make offers. Uh, The others, as we speak, have not yet followed suit. Uh, And we will see what happens. But uh, a couple of things are clear. One is that most energy users and most retailers had already contracted for at least a large chunk of 2023 before the price interventions took place. So the immediate impact of, uh, of those price caps on, on users will be pretty dilute. It will get more important later in the year, as uh, certainly for households, as uh, the uh, the prices that influence the uh, the standing offers are adjusted, and it'll get more and more important for businesses as they emerge from their existing contracts and look for the best that they can get. Uh, but so far, I would say much clearer success for the government on the electricity front than the gas front. And on the gas front, we will be having these arguments quite intensely about uh, whether the, the price caps will work, whether there are side effects on investment or not. The gas producers are currently uh, making themselves and through their proxies 
the argument that uh, these price caps and the the reasonable pricing provision in the mandatory code will chill investment in gas in Australia. Uh, it's got, um, you know, it's, it's not impossible that that will turn out to be the case, but there is a long history of people saying that if they're interfered with in any way, they will, uh, they will go out of business. Um, there's, there's a passage in Charles Dickens' Hard Times where he makes fun of the, the fictional uh, burgers of Coketown for threatening to pitch their property into the Atlantic if they're uh, required to do anything other than what they would do anyway. And uh, it doesn't often come true. So we'll see how that one goes. Um, but I think whether the price intervention fully succeeds or not, people's prices for energy this year are going to be higher than they were last year. Like the actually felt retail prices will be higher. They will be much lower than they would have been if this all works, but they will still be higher in absolute terms. And the contradiction between uh, a, a government that is, is trying to get a better outcome than what otherwise would have happened and people judging against what they can see, which is what they used to pay and what they pay now, uh, that could be a big source of political tension, to say the least. The uh, the great business uh, academic Peter Drucker, uh, if I quote him kind of accurately, says that the first thing that happens is that an industry will say no, that will ruin us, and then soon thereafter there'll be a splitter, and then the whole the rest will follow, uh, and you just you know the the industry structure will change quickly. Paula, is this news? So it's kind of good news for the. The government to begin with is good news for households. It's going to be good news for, for business by the sound of it. Is that good news for the transition? Is this making people think of other options for energy? Yeah, I think it's, um, look, it's really interesting, you know, because people won't, uh, as, as Tanner was saying, people won't say, oh, wow, it could have been a lot busy, you know, thanks government for our prices only going up a certain amount. They'll just see the raise. They'll see the increase, right? So. Um, so uh, you, uh, often in government, you don't you don't get thanked for the things that people can't see. Um, um, so uh, and, short mem- and, and short memories, yeah, short memories as well, right? So um, so I think it's it's a challenge, but I think we, you know, it's not necess- it's not an orderly transition. There's lots of actors doing lots of different things. Um, it's going to be up and down. There's going to be uh, uh, things that are invested in that end up being scrapped. Um, it's not being done in orderly right? I don't know why, but you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of an analogy, and I was uh, a visual analogy, and I was thinking of a three, a th- the old three-legged races. I don't know if anyone uh, did three-legged races at school, but where you used to tie tie, you know, one of your legs together, and then you try and run off. And I think that's like that, but probably with about twenty people with their legs tied together, and we're all we're all trying to we're all trying to head towards net zero, but we're not very coordinated. Um, and I think. Um, uh, that's that's the challenge, but I think people have to kind of accept that there's going to be that kind of up and down. Prices are going to go up. Uh, uh, you know, there is a role for coal and gas in the transition. Let's not forget that as well. Uh, the importance of storage. Uh, we we're seeing lots of uh, uh, potentially almost counter 
counterintuitive signals in the market. Um, but the, it does seem now that in, there is an urgency and there is a movement in a particular direction. It's just that it looks really haphazard and messy at times. Um, and that is potentially the only way you're going to have it unless you control everyone um, and uh, move everyone in the same direction at the same time in coordination, which is particularly difficult to do and impossible for democratic governments to do. I will add one thing on this, which is that uh, so the government's intention is to uh, cap the uh, the selling price for gas at the wholesale level in Eastern Australia to something that it, that resembles the cost of producing it and a reasonable return, taking account of uh, all the risks involved in gas exploration and development production. And that is, you know, exactly what number that pops out uh, for 2024 and beyond is like anybody's guess right now. But it's certainly a much lower number than the number that can be achieved at export. And so one possible outcome of all of this in terms of transition and who's, who's keen on energy transition is that if and when the gas producers accept in their hearts that the local price is not going to be allowed to go to Ukraine crisis international levels and stay there, then they uh, logically should become the biggest new fans of domestic energy transition because the less gas we need within Australia to meet our uh, economic needs, sustain people's lifestyles, the more can be exported at a substantial markup. Uh, so I, uh, I wonder when and whether uh, we will see our, uh, our very good friends at APIA and, uh, and their members extolling the virtues of energy efficiency in gas, uh, explaining the wonderful benefits of electrification uh, or the, uh, the, the advantages from substituting biogas or green hydrogen for what you do with gas today uh, and seeking to shrink overall demand for natural gas. People might be very surprised if, if that, and when that does happen, but logically it should. Yeah, look, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting point and it, it could be that the, the gas industry has a different domestic position to an export position. Um, and we're seeing that even in hydrogen, that uh, uh, the talk about blue hydrogen is uh, quite a bit reduced than where it was because uh, why would you cannibalise your existing high, highly demanded high-price LNG into a, hyd a hydrogen product that you then need to look at what you're going to do with the carbon? Um, mm. when, when you can just sell the export gas. Um, so people are now looking at green hydrogen as a way of uh, using a different feedstock and, and diversifying and growing your business uh, rather than, you know, uh, using, uh, you know, taking a, an existing revenue stream um, and potentially making it complicated or uncertain or even adding extra cost into it. Um, so if we're seeing that, so you were talking about that, James, around are we seeing different, factors. And I think we are seeing uh, the movement into other uh, energy sources uh, that can sit quite, uh, can coexist, uh, not in a either or, but actually in a, uh, we need more energy, we need more, uh, we need more chemicals for fuels and for, uh, and for other purposes. Um, we need more of this. 
So actually, it, it, it does in some ways increase investment in the alternatives as well. Yeah, and we're seeing in other parts of the transition, we're seeing internal combustion engine manufacturers of 100 years are going to electric vehicles. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, the Shells and the, uh, and the BPs of this world are talking about becoming electrical distributors rather than fuel distributors. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see that. We'll get to a stage soon where, where gas producers will be saying, I don't understand why you're not all using electricity, you know. Well, do it with us. We'll see some sort of transition. Both of you mentioned the fact that it's a lumpy transition and, and Tenet, you mentioned global issues. So in our solid bowl of bouncing from issue to issue, let me just uh, raise another issue with you. One of the uh, under-considered aspects of the global energy crisis has been the closed aspect of China, and it is now reopening after 12 months of COVID lockdowns. And they're saying that the effect will have uh, an impact on LNG prices and supply. I don't know if you're, you're been across this. The chairman of the Hong Kong Exchange is reported to have said at a speech, uh, in a speech at uh, Davos that the reopening of China will see Asia GDP grow from 35% now to 45% by 2027. And this growth will require a lot of LNG and coal, much of which will be uh, by China using long-term supply contracts. Meanwhile, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, said that it was able to secure good prices and a quantity of LNG for Europe over the last year, wholly because China was not calling on these contracts. Yes, Europe is moving out of winter, which is a good thing, but this will not be offset by the expected immediate demand from China. Uh, as well, apart from LNG, um, coal uh, and oil is also a big demand by China, with um, China expected to need 2 million barrels per day, up from the 1.6 million now. So, Tenet, what's your thoughts on that? Is it going to have an impact on global uh, prices and supply? Uh, do you think that what they're saying is right? And what does it mean for Australia? Are we going to see an even greater demand for our coal and LNG? So we have seen a, a northern winter um, so far where largely Europe got through much better than many people feared they would six months ago. Uh, the, uh, the weather was mild for the most part. Uh, the demand for uh, gas in Europe was moderated by, by high prices and by uh, voluntary restraint and some uh, impact from the energy efficiency and transition measures uh, that governments are, are fostering, but those, those will really build up over time. And so prices, um, oh, and of course, Europe was very successful in securing as much LNG as it could um, to fill the, the hole left by Russia. Um, and so we saw a softening from eye-poppingly awful to nearly horrible of uh, international <laughs> gas prices. So much um, better. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, look, uh, when, when you've just emerged out of the equivalent of uh, $70 or $80 a gigajoule, um, $50 a gigajoule sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is going to happen next? Now, the China story 
I don't know, you could tell a bunch of different versions of this. I mean, yes, they are reopening uh, and some people thought and reopening leads to consumer uh, spending boom and a lot more demand for stuff and therefore more demand for, uh, for, for, for gas. But also the reopening is not going very well. Uh, lots and lots of people are sick with COVID and they're not uh, well vaccinated uh, by and large um, or they're, they're vaccinated with mediocre vaccines. Uh, and so maybe actually growth is going to uh, move from being suppressed by lockdown to being suppressed by COVID. But then in turn, maybe that means that uh, China will dip back in the well that it has dipped in many times before of stimulus spending. And if it's infrastructure-heavy stimulus spending, let's build bridges to nowhere and highways back and uh, let's um, redouble uh, the, the construction sector activity for the housing, despite all their recent efforts to rein that in. If they do that, then that would mean you know, bad economic performance would lead to spending that specifically drives demand for energy-intensive materials. So maybe uh, growth uh, not meeting expectations will itself lead to higher Chinese gas demand. I think we're going to have to just kind of see what happens. But it's very plausible that, yes, there is one way or another more gas demand out of China in the next couple of years. And there was some reporting in the New York Times uh, recently that uh, there's a lot of unhappy households in China at the moment with a recent cold snap uh, and a lack of availability of gas because the um, retailers are not allowed to raise the price of it very much. Uh, to households, they are allowed to charge the going rate to business. And so for extra gas uh, that is needed to meet extra demand, uh, the, the price has been moving for those, uh, sorry, the supply is there for those who will pay a higher price. And for those who can't be charged a higher price, there's no supply. So I think China's not immune to the dynamics that we have seen elsewhere. It's going to be complicated for us. I think my bottom line is we are not out of the woods of high fuel prices globally. Uh, it'll be, get a little better, it'll get a little worse from month to month, but probably we've got several more years of unusually elevated energy prices to go. Yeah, what's this space? You watching it, Paul? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was going to—I was going to say it's probably not on energy, but I think I, I found it a fascinating thing. I was thinking it was a, a few weeks ago. I saw um, that China's population, apparently due to their uh, for their official statistics, actually fell in 2022 for the first time in mm. 60 years. Um, and India is expected to become the most populous country in the world in the yes. next few months. Um, and the most astounding thing I—I. I, I heard it, I read in that article as well was that the Indian workforce will grow over the next decade from 900 million people to a billion people in the Indian workforce um, over the next decade. Uh, so, so China's got um, so that, that's a really interesting overlay, I guess, around you know where so China's got uh, a, a, I suspect going to have an increased domestic focus. Um, uh, the the, I guess the remnants of the one-child policy are potentially going to create a, 
uh, a kind of deceleration uh, and, and even a reduction in their population. Um, and some of those things obviously feed into growth, but also where are the jobs and where are the where's the economic activity going to be happening? I think uh, increasingly India is going to be one to to look for, and particularly for Australia um, as well. I mean, China's still massive, and China's still going to be a very big trading partner. But uh, but I think there's there's always these uh, uh, these these flows of things that happen at the global level that that things like energy demand and demand for goods and and therefore the effects on things like pricing. Um, uh, there's some really big macro uh, currents at play. Indeed. Let's uh, let's move on. By the way, it turns out that by teaching generations of Chinese to only have one child, you get to a stage where mum and dad have both only have both been raised in a one child family. So they together only want one child because they don't understand any other model. It's not that they don't, uh, it's not that they're not having more than one. It's just that they can't see how that works. Strange social phenomena if you, uh, if you go down that path. Um, Paul, the recent AI Group annual CEO survey revealed that CEOs expect there to be a lot of demand this year, uh, but there's going to be a lot of supply issues. One of the major challenges expected by the CEOs is, of course, severe staff and skill shortages. And as a result, CEOs say they're planning on investing in skills and development training and in digitalization. Uh, our colleague, Dr. Jeff Wilson, who's the head of research for AI Group, said that this means there'll be an underinvestment in capital expenditure uh, in the next 12 months and probably longer. Um, as other supply challenges means that satisfying the demand is expected to be the major major issue for Australian businesses rather than building for the future. As well, inflation and cost of good are expected to be high, including, as the tenant said, energy. So it's going to be difficult on your bottom line and on your balance sheet. Tough time ahead just to make a quid uh, and no or limited investment in the future. Now, you're an economic development expert. This is going to be a problem for the transition when we don't have many years and we're not putting money into CapEx. Are you worried or uh, 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 is it too early to get too concerned? Look, I think the workforce issue is a, is a really big issue. Um, you know, we've got unemployment um, sitting at around about the 3% level. Um, we uh, Pretty much every industry is suffering from shortages of workers. so. There's a, there's a limit to the impact you can have on doing more skilling and training. Um, and I know it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a good one that governments get into. We're going to create more apprenticeships. We're going we're to put more into skilling. The question is, do we actually have the workforce? Do we have the potential workforce to actually do that skilling and training? Um, and I think it leads to a couple of interesting things. One, I think, is what, what do we do in terms of making sure we've got the human resources to be able to not just do the energy transition, but to grow the economy. Um, and that might look at things like skilled migration. Um, but I think you talked about digitization. I think it also then talks to automation and robotics. Um, you know, in, in a 3% unemployment world, um, are people less likely to worry about a robot taking their job and actually look forward to the fact that a robot's going to be working alongside them because it means they're going to keep their job because they can keep the, the throughput of work happening and make the business viable. Um, so I think the, uh, the automation and robotics, which might actually drive capital expenditure um, into those kind of assets, because it, it really is, it could be a real handbrake on the economy that we don't have enough 
workers to fill the jobs and to fill the training programs for all the things that we want to do. Um, and I, I think that's a big constraint right across the economy. But I think it's uh, the skilled migration has to be part of it. Um, and I think also the um, uh, automation, robotics, digitization, how can we do how can we do things to reduce potentially the amount of uh, labor that we require? Um, and it's much easier to do that in a in a low unemployment uh, scenario, I suspect. So it's good to get the uh, the the labor issues sorted out prior to trying to transition your business to net zero, or is it one and the same? Well, I think it comes into the whole discussions around being efficient is probably going to be the best thing to do from an energy transition perspective anyway. So looking at wastage in your business, whether it's energy, um, I mean, if you've got uh, people duplicating things or doing things that are wasted, that's going to be causing energy, it's going to be causing cost and time. Um, so it's, you know, efficiency is always the first thing to look at. You know, am I doing it efficiently? And am I the most, uh, can I do it uh, as efficiently as potentially a, someone else that I could partner with who maybe has got a better way of doing it? Um, so rather than looking just internally at how I run my business myself, but maybe looking at uh, how I might partner with others who have complementary skill sets or technologies or others. Um, which might actually also help me to be able to grow my business through collaboration, um, which means I also don't have to take on the risks of investment or employing people as well, because I can I can I can create those linkages. Um, so I think efficiency is always the first thing you look at. Um, that's that's probably going to be the most uh, the most cost effective way of, uh, of reducing energy or or any of those other costs. Are you going to mount a, an argument uh, contrary to? Uh... To Paul's position, Tenet? No, I think Paul's extremely sensible. I, I just want to raise the stakes or, or uh, emphasise how big a task it's going to be uh, to get built and, and operating everything that we, we may need to. Uh, we are talking... I mean, if we're thinking about the uh, decarbonisation just of the domestically oriented Australian economy, electricity generation capacity and all of the stuff to collect, connect it up and, and make it work has got to increase from uh, less than 100 gigawatts to uh, more than 200 gigawatts uh, over the next couple of decades um, in AMO's central scenario. And if we're talking the the full energy superpower vision where Australia is decarbonising significant chunks of the world economy through relocating energy-intensive minerals processing and, and metals processing to Australia, we would be looking at up to 3,000 gigawatts of generation capacity and then all the stuff that uses that energy and there is no way that we could do that without substantial lifts in productivity through the greater utilization of robotics and automation and artificial intelligence and uh, lifting the capacity of our training and education institutions to supply the necessary skills and uh, being a place that is open to and attractive to uh, skilled migrants 
uh, like we're going to need to do it all if we're going to uh, take that opportunity. Now, there's other things that might stop us from taking that opportunity, including other places having as good or better a pitch in the end at being energy superpowers, but uh, we, we would have, we will have a lot to do just to realise the most certain parts of the opportunity. Uh, and that seems to me something that we need to just put in as a marker and pick up on a, a future episode because there's a lot there to discuss. That's yeah. fascinating. All right, after the break, there is some good news on capital expenditure. After the break, let's talk about that. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Speaking of capital expenditure, the Queensland Premier just uh, announced that uh, the Queensland Government and others will build a large critical mineral facility in Townsville. Uh, It's designed to, quote, provide the commerciality of critical minerals for the new energy economy. It's a 75 million critical minerals facility built in Townsville, which will provide critical minerals that are needed to build the supergrids, the batteries, the wind and the solar farms that Queensland have in their plan. Uh, So my question is, does this mean that critical minerals are now becoming an Australian industry in reality? Uh, Look, I think. Well, I mean, critical. I mean, Australia's got significant critical minerals, and and minerals more generally. I know there's a specific list of what's critical minerals, um, but actually, a lot of kind of other and it varies from country to country. I think, doesn't it? Well, it does. It does, and actually, a lot of the the, the big the big minerals that often don't get considered as critical minerals are just as important. You know, aluminium, steel, copper, um, and uh, obviously nickel and the like. Um, and I think. Governments, I think, can can really help uh, prime the pump um, for doing some of this shared infrastructure um, along the way. I think shared infrastructure is really important, particularly in the early stages of an industry, uh, because it gives certainty to investors who may be investing in, for example, mining. Um, it also gives in uh, certainty to customers as well. And hopefully what you find is that $75 million investment Um, gets leveraged by a whole bunch of follow-on investment and potentially larger-scale critical minerals uh, facilities uh, down the track as well. So um, I think there is absolutely a role for those kind of shared infrastructure, um, early investments by government, because I think it sets sets a tone. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that the government then becomes uh, the only provider of those critical mineral processing services. Um, I think it's uh, that's the other thing is actually just... Uh, governments knowing when to enter and when to uh, gently exit once uh, once the private sector has taken over. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a combined effort. Like you've said before, Team Australia, everyone needs to be playing their part at the right time. It's not just Australia that's uh, interested in this. Uh, Elon Musk and uh, the Telstra uh, organisation are building with uh, Panasonic, are building uh, a... Uh, a Nevada manufacturing battery plant, a battery plant in, in Nevada, that's going to be able to supply 1.5 million vehicles with batteries per year. That's a lot of um, 
<laughs> there's a lot of critical minerals that Australia can probably buy into. Uh, it's interesting to see what's going to happen. With uh, uh, America heading down this path of, of building lots of things and trying to get into the transition in a big way through the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, it sort of puts the focus on Europe and says they probably need to do a few things as well. Where are we at with CBAM, the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism that EU wanted to bring in? Where, where are they at considering they're facing an energy crisis and trying to do a transition? So there's been a few exciting developments on the CBAM front. For, well, I'm glad I asked the question then. For people who are of a, a CBAM obsessive bent like me, it's been an embarrassment of riches. The, the most obvious one is maybe that, uh, Maybe just frame it again. So the CBAM well, is a... A carbon what? border adjustment mechanism is a way for a country that's got a carbon price or a, a, an explicit constraint on carbon to even out the application of that price on trade-exposed goods. So most obviously by applying an import obligation or charge or levy or a requirement to surrender emissions permits or, or offsets uh, on emissions-intensive goods coming into that country, but also potentially doing a, a, a rebate of some sort on uh, carbon leakage risk products being exported from that country. So Europe has been talking about primarily an import obligation uh, for steel, cement, uh, aluminium, electricity, uh, basic chemicals, uh, well, especially fertilisers. And finally, at the end of last year, the Commission and the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers agreed amongst themselves exactly how all that is going to work. Uh, they agreed that the EU CBAM would apply uh, as an, a reporting obligation from late this year, 2023, and as a financial obligation phasing in from 2026. But there'll be this handoff where the CBAM phases in and the current free allocation of emissions rights to uh, leakage risk industries like steel will phase down at the same time. And that handoff won't be complete until 2034. So uh, it's both a big step, but also a careful evolution over in Europe. So that's a big deal. Europe's a big economy. Uh, it won't directly affect Australia that much because we don't export a great deal of those covered goods to Europe, at least at the moment, uh, and will be reasonably fine uh, even to the extent that we are affected because Australian suppliers are currently about equivalent to the average European producer uh, of uh, those products. So their carbon competitiveness will probably be uh, pretty neutral in the short term and uh, they, as long as they can keep up with the pace of decarbonisation in Europe, they should do fine. The other two things to happen is that uh, the United Kingdom is suddenly looking more urgently at carbon border adjustment mechanism options themselves. Uh, so, so more countries joining the party. But also the Australian government uh, put out a few weeks ago its detailed design for 
the evolution of the safeguard mechanism, which is its main policy to drive industrial emissions reduction in Australia. And they said, as part of that design, uh, that they were um, told by many uh, stakeholders to have a look at carbon border adjustment mechanism options for Australia, and they're going to do it. They're going to have a review in 2023 of CBAM options for Australia. Uh, Now, they're not committing necessarily to do a CBAM, but the very fact that they're looking at it when they didn't have to and the underlying logic of this being potentially a much fairer, more efficient and sustainable way to address fears that uh, carbon leakage is going to see industries that have a future or ought to have a future in Australia flee because of the uneven nature of international climate policy, That's uh, that logic is pretty strong. So AI Group has been um, supportive of the government taking a, a strong look at CBAM, and uh, I foresee a lot of work in, um, in that debate going forward, but uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. Even though at this point, I think a lot of people would still say, CBAM what? Well, we'll continue to talk about it uh, on this uh, on this podcast to help people understand it. So, wait a minute. Did you say that uh, uh, Great Britain's thinking about a CBAM similar to what the EU has? Like almost like it would have been better if they'd still been the EU? <laughs> don't answer that. Don't answer that, Tenet. It's a provocative <laughs> way of, uh, of phrasing it. Yeah, I'm just being um, naughty. Um, uh, Paul, do you think the, the federal government will look at that seriously um, or is it just a review? Look, I mean, it's a global Again, you know, ball. A glo- a global capital um, is very mobile. And, uh, and I think we're seeing that particularly last year with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. Um, I think we're still waiting to see how other parts of the world react to that uh, because uh, that was uh, in some ways... Uh, uh, a, a game changer, and you know, a lot of investment would 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 flow to the U.S. So I think there is a there's a a, a a competition on for that global capital as well, and also ensuring that your own uh, industries aren't um, disadvantaged through that. And how that sorts out will be as messy as the energy transition, anyway. Um, and you know, a, a lot of a lot of this doesn't make particular sense in an economic sense. To start with, so uh, you know, incentives, tax credits, uh, subsidies, and others. There will be people uh, looking around for the world to uh, where where they're going to get the best bang for the buck um, in some of that. And again, that's uh, Australia has to think about that. Well, you know, what's what's Australia's competitive advantage? Um, we're not going to have the financial might of some of the other bigger countries that might be offering. Uh, direct subsidies, um, but uh, maybe the maybe we can make it easier for people to invest here, or maybe we can uh, we can do some other things which are, are clever. So I think I think we're going to see a lot happening in the policy space this year uh, at the Australian government level. They uh, you know they've been uh, it's about what eight or nine months since the election. Uh, this is always the year of action in a three year cycle, uh, the, the middle year. So uh, so I'd, I'd be I'd be It'd be interesting when we review it at the end of the year, but I think there'll be some some interesting developments. I would add that the Europeans 
are having a little bit of a freak out at the moment about the US Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, they're both internally saying, oh my God, the Americans are taking this jam for everyone in domestically approach. It's, it's nothing but subsidies and Europe's self-perception is that they've got a very, uh, very responsible, penalty-oriented uh, policies. And so they're saying domestically, oh, we need some subsidies. And, and internationally, they're saying to the Americans, uh, hey, you're stabbing us in the back here. What about a little democratic unity? And like we'll we'll see where all that gets to, but there certainly is some pushback to the um, domestic industry policy spin, well, more than spin, substance of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. Yeah, there's some strong arguments that it is largely protectionism rather than globalism, uh, and uh, but that's good for us because we're 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 part of the uh, Australia is, has got some good parts to the. In- Inflation Reduction Act, which is not really a good name for it because there's a lot more to it than just inflation reduction. Uh, that's, that's another good marker. So we'll drop down a, a CBAM, we'll drop down policy, and also seeing how that unfolds around the world. We cannot go uh, without talking about hydrogen uh, because, you know, it's Paul's baby. I read recently, Paul, that a study by a UK research company said that Quote, renewable hydrogen from Australia, Chile, and Morocco will be cost competitive in Europe compared to the domestic equivalent by 2030. The report says uh, used Germany as the case study and it included transportation costs and the conversion of hydrogen into ammonia and then back to hydrogen. It says the challenge, though, may come from a pipeline of hydrogen to the EU from Spain and Turkey is growing as another major industrial threat in the decarb economy. Uh, hydrogen is quickly becoming a global, a, a global industry. Pricing is a major issue. Australia's got a bit of a jump start perhaps here. What are you seeing? Um, again, very messy. And a lot of this is modelling, um, not necessarily looking at real pricing. It's ifs, buts and maybes. Um, so look, the transport costs are going to be a reasonably small amount of the costs, uh, the the shipping um, is very efficient for a lot of commodities, and it, uh, including things like LNG. So it's likely that potentially for things like ammonia, uh, methanol using green hydrogen uh, could be similar as well. Um, but it's the the input costs. You know, if we're looking at the sort of scale that you're going to require to to do that, do what does renewable electricity generation and transmission look like in Australia? Who's paying for that infrastructure? Um, how do you end up with a reliable quantity? Is it grid connected or non-grid connected? Um, and and how long does the regulatory process take to actually get the, that to market? Uh, these are all ifs, buts, and maybes. And so, um, so it, it's it's likely. I mean, Australia does already provide energy around the world. Um, it is it is not beyond the realms of possibility that Australia could produce green hydrogen, green ammonia, green methanol, and also ship it around the world. Um, but we're not there yet. There's still a lot of supply chain challenges, um, and it's a globally competitive industry where, from an energy security perspective, countries and uh, major customers are not just sticking with one particular opportunity. They are doing MOUs with lots of parties 
um, hoping that one of them will get to them first with a reliable, affordable, secure uh, uh, supply of whatever, whatever energy source they need. Um, and we're, it's not guaranteed that that will come from Australia, regardless of, of uh, what the pricing and the modelling might suggest, because we haven't got the supply chain worked out yet. We haven't got an orderly development of renewables with water uh, potentially into, into pipelines or into uh, other storage and, and, and into ships and, and off around the world. But it's, it's possible, but we actually have got a lot of challenges to sort out. Tenant? So you hear a lot of different arguments in this space. I looked at a, a paper from the International Renewable Energy Agency last year, which which was focused on the transport modes for uh, potential international trade in hydrogen. And they're, they're a big deal. Like whether you're going the, uh, the liquid hydrogen route where you've got low uh, volumetric energy density and uh, a lot of energy needs for the liquefaction and, and, and losses in boil-off, or whether you're going for ammonia shipping where you've got energy losses in the conversion and then the conversion back if you're not using it as ammonia at the other end, uh, there's, some, there's some significant costs involved in the trade. And so this question of how much of, I mean, you know, we've got a cascade of uncertainties. How much hydrogen is the world going to consume in net zero land? But then of that, how much of that is going to be traded across international borders uh, versus locally made and locally consumed? And if the, if the transport costs are high enough, even a mediocre cost of renewable energy might still mean that it makes more sense to, to make it locally. This, you know, Japan is a huge swing factor here, a very important market for Australia today and an important partner for co-investment in uh, both energy export and energy use industries. And they currently, the national energy policy um, does expect that they will import uh, a bunch of hydrogen and a bunch of ammonia. Um, but it's like to me, there's still this sense of of a lot further to go in the evolution of Japanese domestic thought on this, because one of the things that's a plank in their plan is uh, co-firing ammonia in coal-fired power stations. And to me, that seems bonkers. That is something that you do as like a demonstration project for how one day you're going to reduce your coal emissions by 1%. It's not something that you would ever consider doing to get to net zero emissions because it's just a very expensive fuel to be using in baseload power, maybe uh, for, for peakers and, and, and rare backup, but not for something that you're running every day. So I think they've got further to go and we're relying on them to buy the stuff. So we're going to have some uncertainties hanging over us for a little while yet. Paul? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things in there I think are useful to say. I think one is um, I think global maritime trade at the moment is about 30 to 40% of it is fossil fuels. And I think um, under any scenario, it's unlikely to think we'll be shipping energy around the world uh, to the extent that we have with coal, oil, and gas. Um, so um, 
I think pretty much every report, including the IRENA report, DNB had a report last year, a whole bunch of others have looked at hydrogen being shipped um, is unlikely to ever replace the kind of volumes of LNG, coal and oil that go around. So I think that's a really important one. The other one then is kind of, uh, and it, this is sort of playing out in Australia at the moment as well. So Sun Cable has gone into voluntary administration. Um, from reports, it seems to be that there's been a difference of opinion about whether uh, a cable is the best way to export those renewables to Singapore or whether it's either. Just framed Sun Cable again. It was a uh, eligible cable from Northern Territory to from Singapore. From the Northern Territory to Singapore, yeah. Um, and uh, mega is, renewables development at one end of the cable. Yeah, that's yeah right. it was all so renewable think, energy. Actually, yeah. That's right. So there's no dispute, I think, about the renewable energy generation. It's actually how do you get it to market? Um, and it does seem to be that between the two major proponents of that who were working together um, and apparently don't seem to be working together now, one uh, saw the electrical cable, the uh, high-voltage DC cable, as a uh, as the way to do it. And the other one uh, prefers to see green hydrogen ammonia shipped. Um, I think that's fascinating because I think we're not going to see so much sent around the world, um, but we're also, and it's partly because the distributed na- better distributed nature of renewables and potentially water where you do need hydrogen, uh, than perhaps bringing a coal or an oil or a gas deposit to market, which requires a lot of capital investment and a centralised approach. Um, so I think that's really important. And then I think the pipeline versus uh, high voltage transmission um, is the other one as well. And so uh, so I think some of those are going to be techno-economic decisions that get played out. I think that's going to become a lot clearer um, as that works out. Because as Tennant says, you've got, uh, you've got losses, you've got extra capital costs, you've got inefficiencies. Uh, you've got uh, operating costs and a whole range of other risks, including geopolitical risks. Um, if I'm a, uh, a country that worries a little bit about my neighbours, having a high voltage cable uh, uh, from their country um, to my country um, might seem as quite like I'm putting all my eggs in the one basket. It might look like a, a, a bit of a power imbalance. Um, having regular shipment of energy and chemicals from a multitude of countries might look like a much more strategic, less risky geopolitical play. So there's other things that come into this other than just a, a, the brute economics as well. Um, and particularly when energy security is, is really foremost for most, most countries. Well, I, I guess Europe would say that there are risks involved in getting the majority of your energy via a pipeline. We learned that last year uh, and you know, the lesson's real. Uh, into our salad bowl of energy issues, uh, we've dumped a lot today, <laughs> and we'll pick them up in future future episodes. The idea of this podcast, as I said, is to try and uh, get some clarity into all the things that are going on, so that business people can make some good decisions. We've dumped in uh, just a few things, I just jotted down. The energy crisis is going to be unclear as it unfolds. We've got uh, the lumpiness of the transition. Um, we've got efficiency and skills stuff. We've got policy unfolding that we'll need to keep an eye on. CBAM, global issues, including protectionism, and now techno-economics, a new term by Paul that I, I quite like. It's probably not a new term, but it's the first time we've used it on this podcast. 
there's a lot going on. It's going to be an interesting year. Once a month, the three of us will chat. It's been a good episode. Thank you, uh, guys. See you next month. Good fun. See you soon. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks, Tennant. I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about on the next episode and beyond. <laughs> There's going to be lots. And thank you to all of you, our loyal listeners. There's a, a big band of people that turn up every month to hear the show, and uh, we appreciate it. If you want to provide feedback or comment on any of the issues, uh, or if you just have ideas for the show, or if you just want to give us feedback, please send me an email uh, to james.scotland1t at aigrip.com.au or drop a thought into any of our personal LinkedIn pages. We'd love to hear from you. And just before you go, uh, I would be missed if I didn't tell you that we now have a new uh, AI group, that is, now has a new monthly newsletter called Economic Intelligence. It's an online monthly magazine full of insights and analysis of the key economic issues of the month. Uh, so if your business management and planning could be improved by up-to-date and insightful economic news, head over to the AI Group website and search for Economic Insights or get the monthly newsletter direct to your inbox just by asking AI Group uh, Economics team to send it to you. That's economics at aigroup.com.au uh, and we'll talk to you next month.